Welcome to the next track. A podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. We self-produce the Next Track podcast and want to keep it ad-free, so we rely on contributions from listeners for support. You can help us by making a regular donation via Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash the next track. And thanks. So there is no better album that marks the end of a decade than the Rolling Stones' Let It Bleed. Kind of does come right on the edge there. I thought it actually came out, I thought it was an inaugural record. I thought it introduced into the 70s. For some reason, I thought uh, Let It Bleed by the Rolling Stones came out in the spring of 1970, but it didn't. It came out right at the end of that 69 tour, right? Yeah, November 28th in the U.S. and December 5th in the U.K. And what happened on December 6th? Something about some big old concert out on the West Coast going berserk. Yeah, and definitely. And so I've been looking into this, and I'm trying to... We were 10 years old. I didn't even know about Altamont until many years later when the film played in the midnight showings. And I've been looking into this and trying to imagine what it was like at that point. A few months after Woodstock, peace and love, everybody, and... The Rolling Stones were almost diabolical on Let It Bleed and even on Beggar's Banquet before that. They were, it's it's kind of weird to think of them now as these like plush figures doing a tribute band to the Rolling Stones. But back then, they were pretty evil. They were trying to find their voice Yeah. as far as like pop songs go. And I think there's a whole bunch of things we could talk about here, but I think... In general, Bob Dylan unleashed everybody. Even if you didn't write the way Bob Dylan did, you could still write songs that sounded like Bob Dylan wrote. And I think Mick Jagger, who is not a dumb man, said, hey, this is an opportunity for me to kind of explore a little bit. Now, the the diabolicalness, I think, is just blues-based. It's just their blues stuff. They like stuff like Howlin' Wolf, where the lines are like... Um, I got an axe handle pistol on a on a 45 frame shoot tombstone bullets wearing balls and chains drinking TNT smoking dynamite I hope some screwball starts a fight cuz I'm ready 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 you know I mean this is the kind of posturing songs that they listen to as blues fans and so when Mick Jagger was told sort of was allowed to listen we don't need any more of those Ruby Tuesday songs yeah write yep. some write you know explode a little bit open up a little bit and and so this persona of the Rolling Stones as menacing, as posturing, kind of comes from that blues tradition. And I think it's all through this record, and, and to some extent the previous one, Beggar's Banquet. But this one really kind of hits it in a, in a couple of good spots. I want to take a few quotes from Grail Marcus's review of the album at the time. He focuses at the end about, well, the bookend songs, Give Me Shelter and You Can't Always Get What You Want, the opening and closing songs. He says, if Gimme Shelter is the Stones' song of terror, you can't always get what you want looks for satisfaction in resignation. And then near the very end, these two magnificent songs no longer reach for mastery over other people, but for an uncertain mastery over the more desperate situations the coming years are about to enforce. That's very interesting because I've always thought of Gimme Shelter as an anti-war song, right? Wouldn't you say? To some degree. I've always <laughs> thought of it as a post-68 protest song. Yeah, there you go. It's it, But that, that era, it's it, the chaos. Yeah. It, it, you know, right? yeah. And then at the end, you can't always get what you want with a very formal. <laughs> it's all very formal. And, it and says, there's a Look, choir. 
and a choir, and it's it's you know it's got lots of it's got uh, Mike Bloomfield on it, I think. Right? No, Al Cooper. Al, Al Cooper, Cooper playing playing French horn. For goodness' yeah. sake, it's a Rolling Stone song with a French horn in it. And it's like, did Keith use it for a slide later? That's what I like. To know. <laughs> but also, it's seven and a half minutes, and you just have to think back to Al Cooper on Highway sixty one revisited with Bob Dylan. That like he's the zelly in, in this period, isn't he? He's everywhere. He's the, he's he's the diddler. It's like. Well, he, it worked for Dylan. Let's bring him in and let him diddle with us. And yeah, so they said, here's a French horn. Do something with it. Be, because That's famously, it. that organ riff that he came up with, he was like, well, I got this really good riff. And they're like, well, go back and smoke a cigarette. We don't want you. And then Dylan hears it. He said, yeah, just play that. And and that really made, you know, that really made that song. Well, I think, again, you know, to mention the Dylan connection, and since we're talking about personnel, Ry Cooter is on here. He played with Dylan. Yeah. Mike Bloomfield is on it. He played with uh, Dylan. Leon Russell is on it. He definitely he recorded with Dylan. Not only did Mike Bloomfield play with Dylan, he played with Dylan at the Newport Folk Festival when Dylan went electric. Exactly. So these are, you know, this this is a, a Dylan-esque record to some degree. I'm. It's just like the Rolling Stones to say, oh, let's do the fashionable thing. Because that's what they would, you know, they'd sort of follow these yeah, friends. Yeah, but... But if you look at it, it's not fashionable. It really isn't. It really stood out. So I've mentioned this a number of times. When I moved to France in 1984, I took about a dozen cassettes and I took an Iowa, what did we call a Walkman that wasn't made by Sony? Uh, a Walkman. <laughs> we called it a, an Iowa Walkman. <laughs> <laughs> and two of the cassettes were Rolling Stones. One was Beggar's Banquet and Let It Be, and the other was Exile on Main Street. So these... Four, these four records, three albums have been printed with me as I was hitchhiking around France. And I've listened to these hundreds of times. For me, there's a block there. And we were talking last week about how Sticky Fingers just doesn't fit in that, you know, these four, I, I keep saying four iconic albums. It's four records. These three iconic albums, Sticky Fingers doesn't fit. But this was the Rolling Stones at their peak when... I don't think they were doing it to be fashionable. I think they were, you said they were finding their voice, and that's what it is. Because after Let It Bleed was them bringing back the blues with things like Love in Vain. And then when you get up to Exile on Main Street, where they're going full blues, and it was the, it was the circle closing with the early Rolling Stones. Because after that, it kind of went downhill. I wouldn't say immediately, but, you know, that, that you've got that three-album period there that was just fantastic. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think um, a big thing that we don't think about is the loss of Brian Jones. And I think, I don't know how much he held them back. I mean, he had been fired from the band by the time this record came out. So it wasn't like, you know, he was a Rolling Stone anymore. But, um, I, you know, they, were, they really were trying to figure out where are we going to go from here. And I, like you say, I agree, this little alleyway that they're in with this American blues folk thing going on that kind of disappears after Sticky Fingers kind of comes back in exile on Main Street. But, you know, Sticky Fingers, I think, which is how Yaya's came out after Let It Bleed. Yeah. Because that was the recording of the tour and a pseudo movie soundtrack. And it could be after Brian Jones's death and everything, they didn't want to go back in the studio again. Even though Brian Jones died in July 69, this album came out at the end of the year, but this album had been finished by then. Well, he, yeah, that's what's Brian interesting. Jones is on it. The album was delayed for a long time. Well, he plays, what, marimba and auto harp on a couple you know, of songs? I think he stumbled into the studio a couple of days, did like a Peter yeah. Green sort of thing, and just kind of, ah, I don't know what I'm doing anymore, and, and left. That's sort of what the story is. Um, 
you know, he plays wood blocks on a couple of songs. It's it's really kind of sad. That's why Ry Cooter is there. That's why Mick Taylor is there, because they wanted a second guitar player. And, and a couple of songs, Keith does yeah. all the guitar. It was originally scheduled to be released in July 69. Now, I don't know if the delay was because of Brian Jones or something else. Honky Tonk Women was released in July as a single, and Honky Tonk Women is not on the album. We'll talk later about the tracks Country Honk, which is a, a different version of the song. And it's kind of weird that one of the most popular, most recognizable Rolling Stones song is not on a studio album. It's on a Greatest Hits album later, many Greatest Hits albums. Every other um, one, yeah. Yeah, but why they didn't put it on the album, I guess you didn't want the two versions of the song on the album. The story I heard was, is that they had done Country Honk, which is a countrified sort of version of, it sounds like they're sitting in the back of the limousine playing this song. Um, and it seems to me that somebody said to Keith Richards that something like that would never be a hit. And so they went back in the studio and did Honky Tonk Women, which is obviously, you know, everybody knows that song. It's a, it's a bit more organized, a bit more modern song. Raucous. And it's, and that's the, that's the version of Honky Tonk Women that we think of when other people do it. I don't know a single band in the world, at least for a time, that did not know how to play Honky Tonk Women. And the interesting thing is, is that there are extra verses that Mick Jagger would write for people if they were going to do the song, like, for instance, Joe Cocker does a version of it on uh, his Mad Dogs and Englishmen record. It's a fabulous arrangement. Leon Russell, again, is there. And um, there are different. there's a different set of words. There's an additional verses about, I don't know, sailors and prostitutes or whatever. You know, just similar stuff. Humble Pie also does a, a version of it. And they have different words. Now, I don't think you can play that song without Mick Jagger's blessing, especially if you're those types of acts. So I think he either okayed their lyrics or gave mm. them some yeah. leftover lyrics. But it's really kind of an interesting life that the song Honky Tonk Women has to start off as this almost a throwaway song, really, on Let It Bleed. It's sort of a, it's a flavor song. It's not mm. core music. And, uh, and then suddenly that's exactly what it becomes. Yeah. So the single was released the day after the death of Brian Jones. It was certainly not a reaction. It had to have been planned. Yeah. Right. And the B-side was you can't always get what you want. Now, there were there were no singles released from Let It Bleed, interestingly, except in Japan, where there was a single with Let It Bleed and You Got the Silver. So it's kind of weird that there was no single from the album, yet there was a single with a song that wasn't on the album with arguably one of the best songs on the album as the B-side. Well, there's, I mean, that's the... It sounds like the marketing department kind of missed the boat. Maybe. I, you know, I don't know if any of these songs would have gotten airplay from this album. This, the, the, you, can, you Can't Always Get What You Want is seven minutes long. Might not have gotten played on AM radio. Gimme Shelter is a little bit, a little hot for top 40, I think. And, you know, these songs emerged later because they were so popular among, you know, regular listeners. So when mm. FM radio comes along, these things rise to the top. These are the great songs. Um, but it is interesting that there's no, there are no singles from this record, except for, the, except for Honky Tonk Women, if you want to count yeah, that. Yeah, Let It Bleed is five and a half minutes long, so that's too long for AM radio. So the reason we're talking about this album is a couple of weeks ago, I started getting this earworm for Monkey Man. And I'm listening to this over and over. I'm realizing what an underrated song. This is such an extraordinary song. And I was thinking if the lyrics were different, maybe it would have been more popular. I'm a flea bit peanut monkey and all my friends are junkies. That's not really true. I'm a cold Italian pizza. I could use a lemon squeezer. What you do. And apparently it's 
they had met some Italian singer and they wrote the song for him. But it's like, it just kind of doesn't make sense except for that one verse. This one verse says it all. We hope we're not too messianic or a trifle too satanic, but we love to play the blues. That's them. And whenever I think of that, I think of the cake on the front. Because we he, ugly he, cover. They're referring ugly to themselves. He's yeah. he's talking about the the band there, which is yeah. you know oh boy a tidbit, and uh, and then you look at the album cover and it's like these little candle wedding cake fellows. Yeah, you know I love that yeah. little thing. I wanted that. It's it's a. <laughs> In fact, it's I a pretty dumb a album table. cover though. I may buy a turntable just so I can buy a vinyl copy of Let It Bleed just so I can have the album cover. Because the album cover is classic. <laughs> really? I don't like oh, it. Oh, I love it. I mean, I love it. It, it's classic as as a meme, right? Yeah. But I don't think it's very attractive. Well, that's what I like about it. I thought that's it was yeah. the anti-album cover. It's a bit hokey. Yeah, okay. Because they destroy it on the other side. Yeah. It's Someone throws something at it or it's yeah. just perfectly destroyed. Yeah. So this album kind of encapsulates this period, but weirdly... It, having been finished early 69, pre-Woodstock, it prefigures post-Woodstock and Altamont and everything that was going to happen after that, which... That's actually interesting. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. It, it does. Very prescient. Yeah. Yeah. It is a real pivot point in popular music. You'd have to go back and look at some other late 1969, early 1970 to see what's going on. You know, The Grateful Dead had two albums in 1970, Working Man's Dead and American Beauty. And there are a couple of songs about Altamont, New New Speedway Boogie, for example. So Altamont was clearly, it was a turning point, I think, for rock and roll, for festivals, for even though there were plenty of festivals after that, it was the one that said, this is not all peace and love, this is reality. Right. It's uh, And also Lights Out. It was kind of Lights Out for festivals for a while. I mean, they came back later, but they were much cleaner much yeah. well run. I'm thinking things like the Us Festival and well, there were there were concerts like the English Town concerts, um, September three seventy seven with the Grateful Dead, Charlie Daniels Band, and some other country rock thing, and that was like three hundred thousand people. But it wasn't a festival. It was it it was it could actually have turned out bad because if you look at the pictures, you see that they surrounded the audience area with these shipping containers. So the people couldn't get out. I, I remember when that happened, it was really hot that day. I didn't want to go. I don't like big concerts. So we were all listening to it in Queens. It was live on WNEW-FM. And the Dead did one of their best performances ever. But when you look at the pictures and you think about it, like it was really hot. They were running out of water and all that. It could have turned bad. It's funny. That reminds Now I'm thinking about Gimme Shelter because that was one of the Speaking of live things, that was one of the first things I saw where it was a full concert. You saw, it was very exciting to see the Rolling Stones. And, and the first time I ever saw it, Channel 5 here in Boston ran it at like midnight when it was, I guess it had finished its theatrical run and they ran it once. I remember, and our, my math teacher in junior high school said, wrote on the board, you must watch Gimme Shelter this Saturday at midnight on Channel 5 out of Boston. And uh, I did, and it's... It's uh, that it's just a mind-bending uh, movie, you know, and uh, the fact that all the music is in it. Uh, the, the, the thing that this is the other thing that cracks me up about the tour. They were touring the album and it hadn't been released yet, which is really strange. I mean, you don't go to a concert and expecting to hear songs you don't know. Yeah, 
I mean, that's just odd. You wouldn't go to a Rolling Stones concert now and have them play something that you never heard, right? It wouldn't be disappointing. Well, they don't really write anything anymore, so it's a little bit different. But it's not, you know, you think of Pink Floyd after Dark Side of the Moon came out, they were playing some of the songs that were on Animals, right. along with the songs from Wish You Were Here, well before either of them came I out. I suppose so, but and they were working on it. Exactly. They were workshopping the songs. They had yeah. different titles, different lyrics, you know, they were longer, shorter, whatever. So it's not unheard of for that to happen. But in pop music, I'd say in prog rock, you can accept that. In pop music, it's a lot different. You you know, it's it's like, okay, this is on our new album and they'll play the songs. On but- Get Your Yaya's Out, there's a very distinct audience thing going on. And you hear this woman going, paint it black. She wants to hear. She wants to hear the hit. She wants to hear "Paint It Black," and uh, that's. I think that's the intro to yeah. uh, "Sympathy for the Devil." Uh, they use it there um, because she's really angry that they don't play "Paint It Black." So a little bit about "Let It Bleed," and I, I found this interesting. It, first of all, it's the last album that was released in mono, though it wasn't mixed in mono. It was just a, a fold-down mix. So basically, they just took the stereo mix and mixed it in mono, but. I had forgotten, I just I just guessed, I didn't notice how, what do you say when the instruments are all on one side each? There's a, oh. how separated the instruments are? Well, you are? mean, are you talking about that Beatlesque sort of thing where things are hard yeah. left, hard right? Because they didn't know how exactly. to do stereo. They weren't sure how, how people wanted to hear stereo. But was this like this on the earlier albums? I didn't have time to go back. It's definitely not on Exile on Main Street. Oh, no. By then, they were doing the full spectrum. Everybody was doing full spectrum. I mean, you can, for an example... If you listen to an early Beatles album and then go to right to Abbey Road, you can hear that there's stuff on one side and then but then if you go to Abbey Road, it's like that full spectrum thing. That's what the Rolling Stones were. Yes, but wasn't Abbey Road recorded in sixty nine or seventy? Yeah, probably so. When was Pink Floyd doing their thing and when was um you know, didn't Dark Side of the Moon get recorded similar around the time of Abbey Road? Well, yeah, but 71 released in 72, but Dark Side of the Moon is different because they're, they're intentionally playing with that and the, and the things moving back and forth. I would have expected that the Stones would have been more up-to-date and not wedded to that older style. Mm, yeah, well, yeah, you know, you got to remember, does, it, the Rolling Stones... It are, does make it sound like it's the 60s, The Rolling Stones right? are not innovators. No. It's, the Beatles are the innovators. The Rolling Stones are yeah. just trying to sound like the innovators... You know, their satanic majesty's request, I rest my case. You know, this imitative, yeah. derivative sort of, we got to do what's, that's why I said earlier, fashionable. Um, it seemed like they were afraid to try anything. This is where they actually, you know, give it some guts and, and get out there and hang something out there that is not necessarily pop, that is, uh, it's, uh, it's a little edgier. So as we have done every time we've talked about albums released on vinyl, we look at them as two sides or four sides, because each side is, yes, each side is a suite. And the first one is give me shelter to let it bleed. And that's just, that's just magical, right? Give me shelter, love in vain, country hunk, live with me, let it bleed. Now, I was telling you last week, not a fan of country hunk, the only song for me that's not a masterpiece on the record, but that suite is just amazing. And then the second suite, Midnight Rambo, You've Got the Silver, Monkey Man, You Can't Always Get What You Want. This is powerful stuff, the way that this is sequenced in addition to the songs themselves. It truly is. And that's, I mean, this is one of my favorite albums to listen to for that very reason, because it does carry you along on a really interesting wave. Um, all the way through, and it's unfor- 
Actually, it's not unfortunate that you have to stop and get up and turn the record over because exactly. it really is a very natural intermission into the, the second side. The first side is, is bumpy. You know, it's bumpy. It's supposed to be. And then it kind of smooths out by the time they get through Let It Bleed, which is a very nicely recorded song. It's very nice. Yeah. And then you get into the rest of the stuff on the other side. You know, the John Lee Hooker stuff. And Another thing I notice is that many of these songs have really interesting introductions. We don't hear many introductions these days because if people are streaming music and it takes more than five seconds before the verse comes in, they're likely to skip. Think of the introduction to Let It Bleed, that little slide guitar bit that comes in before the acoustic. Think of the Midnight Rambler introduction, that, that kind of roadhouse blues sound. You can't always get what you want. It starts with the choir, which you, you almost think the Rolling Stones are going prog rock here. Oh, wow. I will say that I never went. That, I never thought that extreme about it, but I always thought it was a bit bizarre. And I'm, it was, it seemed appropriate at the time when I first heard the song. When, like you say, when it was like ten, eleven, twelve, it seemed right to mm. have the choir at the beginning. And I don't know why. It seemed like a good choice. It's not a great recorded choir, right? You've no. listened to choirs before. Yeah. They just brought a bunch of people into the studio and said, "Sing this." Yeah. Um, it's not recorded in any kind of special church or anything. It's not a, not even recorded in a in a choir room. So um, I, you know, it's it's an effect that they definitely wanted. There's no question about that. Interesting effect, though. But it doesn't fit at all with the rest of the album. And and in a way, it's like a it's like a coda before. It's like. The rest of the song is the encore to the concert, right? And we're slipping this thing in here after, you know, after Monkey Man, which is a raucous song. And then, okay, we're going to chill out. And then we're going to get to the real message we have. You can't always get what you want. But if you try sometimes, you just might get what you need. I think, uh, I think you might be right about that. That is a nice little lull that the choir provides before you get into the meat of it. Yeah, it's really good. And it's, I'm, it's really good. They did a nice job. You know, my favorite, one of my favorite things of this, I have the liner photograph of the original album liner open here. And at the bottom, it says in very big block letters, I think Keith Richards insisted on this, this record should be played loud. Yes. And I did. <laughs> I used to play it loud all the time. And I'm wondering if there's actually a technical reason why. I wonder if there's a, a vinyl thing about because mm. the sides are only 20 minutes so it's not like they've lost any sound they haven't had to stretch yeah. anything out so i don't know about the mastering techniques or anything i don't know if if they said played loud because we're the bad boys play I the record loud and be really annoying yeah. and we're ooh, we're bad yeah. or or you know what the deal is with that but then you have the contrast of like love in vain and you got the silver and this is this is pure exile on Main Street, right? The Love and Jane, the Robert Johnson song, acoustic guitar. You've got the silver, which is Keith's first vocal or first complete vocal. There was a song where he sang a verse on earlier. Connection or something, didn't we, we discover we looked they the said other it was day, connection yeah. or something like that? And and so those two songs, and even Country Honk is an acoustic song with the violin and, and all that. And and they kind of act as a contrast to everything else, because everything else is raucous, except for those three songs. Yet, they, the, these are like, take this exit ramp to Exile on Main Street. It's just, they're, they're just showing where they're going next. Well, you know, the exit ramp actually begins on Beggar's Banquet, because there's a lot of those nice little folky songs on there, too. Prodigal Son, which is almost like a, a folk song. I don't, I, they wrote that, right? But it sounds like a traditional folk song. 
Um, Dear Doctor is on there. It's another one. There's another goofy sort of a country Western song that they, you know, they like to do. So they were doing some of this, but I think they're more in earnest on this one. Whereas before those earlier songs, Prodigal Son, Factory Girl on Beggar's Banquet, they sound kind of, I don't know, they sound a little too folky. Mm. But here they've been able to incorporate it a, a, a little better into the rock. So on Baker's Banquet, you have No Expectations, which is similar to Love in Vain in its sound. But you start with Sympathy for the Devil. The second side start with Street Fighting Man. The same kind of, this is the message we're sending. And then it ends with Salt of the Earth, which is just such a happy song in some ways. Yeah. It's an anthemic yeah. song, right? Yeah, it, it's an anthem. Yeah, you're right. It is. It's very anthemic, but it's not, it's not We Are the Champions. No. But it's, but it's, it's. It makes you feel good. It's one yeah. of those. Uh, yeah. It's a peasant peasantry. It's a pleasant peasantry. Yeah, it it could almost be a union song. Yeah, you know. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Indeed. So, Let It Bleed is. Uh, I would have to say that as an album, Let It Bleed to me is the quintessential Rolling Stones album. As much as I love Exile on Main Street, I'd cut some of it out. Right, there's no fat in Let It Bleed, with the exception of Country Honk, but it's fine. It's Shouldn't like say that. Don't forget, Country Honk is the seed for the honky tonk women universe, and there's honky tonk women has its own <laughs> life out there. It's a really fascinating thing. Someone should write a book on how many recordings and why uh, of honky tonk women there are, because there are hundreds of them. It's one of the most covered songs I think I've ever I've ever encountered. It's interesting because you don't think of any of these other songs. On Let It Bleed being covered. No, you don't. And you know what? Well, it's an well, easy song. I mean, Love in Vain, which is obviously a cover already, but that doesn't it's count. It's a fun song to sit around with your friends and sing, because everyone can, you know, it's a singing along song. Sort of. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. I guess it's not really for mixed company, is it? <laughs> I mean, it's not really. <laughs> no. But a lot of the other songs are, I wouldn't say they're difficult to play, but they're not easy, right? Midnight Rambler, you've got to have flicks. You can't always get what you want. You can do that with just a couple people, but it doesn't have the gravitas. And something like Give Me Shelter, you know, you just can't. <laughs> yeah. Can you imagine someone covering Give Me Shelter? It doesn't feel... Well, Grand Funk Railroad did it. Grand Funk Railroad had a hit with it. As a, really? Yeah, it's 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 okay. Um, it's not a great version. I believe it was a minor hit. And the, and the other thing I want to say is Let It Bleed actually is a fun song to play. Um, we used to play that. We used to sit around and play Let It Bleed on guitars. And Johnny Winter does a, a really excellent version of Let It Bleed. Apparently in 1993, a foods record project collected varied versions of the song by the following bands and collaborations, Voice of the Beehive and Jimmy Somerville, Heaven 17, New Model Army. So this is all the new wave bands playing Gimme Shelter, and it just doesn't feel right. You know what I mean? Yeah, it really doesn't, does it? I mean, as much as I love those bands and those uh, that kind of style, you can't take "Gimme Shelter" and turn it into a new wave punk song. It just doesn't. It has to. It's from its era. It's yeah, can't be done. There, that's settled. All right, so that's it. Let It Bleed is probably the archetypical Rolling Stones album. But looking at the history and looking at this as the pivot point from the '60s to the '70s is interesting. You know, get your yayas. It can be seen as a filler album, right? It's not new material. And then, and then you've got Exile on Main Street, which is the total 
which is not only the change, it's them going to that big house in the south of France, immersing themselves in the music. It's, it's They're running away from everything. They're running away from taxes. And they got rid, and Brian Jones wasn't there. That creep wasn't hanging around anymore. Yes, good point. Yeah. I don't think we're going to do any next tracks for this episode because we've got nine next tracks. No. So we both picked who, the same thing. Yes. Anyone who's looking for something to listen, put on what it played. This was episode number 233 of The Next Track. Thanks for listening. You can start or join a conversation in the comments section of this episode's show page at our website. And you'll also find links to some of the things we talked about in the show notes for this episode. Just visit thenexttrack.com. Follow us on Twitter at Next Track Cast. And don't forget to support The Next Track by making regular donations via Patreon. We're ad-free and self-sustaining, so your support is what keeps us going. Visit patreon.com slash thenexttrack. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks again. We'll talk to you next time.